You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. just downloaded an episode of Sectarian Review, a monthly podcast of reviews, cultural criticism, and opinion. Contributors to Sectarian Review try to think broadly and seriously, but also a little frivolously about the life of the mind in contemporary America. We've read a lot, watched a lot, and thought a bit about the world, and we're here to talk about it. Sectarian Review is a part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network, but don't hold those guys too responsible for what we say here. If something we say gets you thinking, send us an email at sectarianreview at gmail.com. We also have a Facebook page where you can post comments, reactions, and ideas for future episodes. Now sit back, relax, and hopefully enjoy another episode of Sectarian Review. Hello, everyone. Thanks for downloading another episode of the show. Danny Anderson here, Assistant Professor of English at Mount Aloysius College in Crescent, Pennsylvania. I want to give fair warning that this episode might be contentious, uncomfortable, and even unfair. And this is my hope, at least. Football occupies a gigantic space in our cultural consciousness, and I think we should at least notice that. In doing so, we're going to be picking at some scabs, which is, I know, an icky image, which I apologize for immediately. Uh, I should confess up front that I have some personal issues with this subject, so I'll have to work to avoid making this all about me and my own psychology. Uh, I'm from Cleveland, which is, of course, a huge town for sports fandom, and I've spent almost all of my youth utterly obsessed with the local teams, primarily the Browns. And maybe it's because the Browns' terribleness makes this too easy, but uh, I've gotten old, and as I've gotten old and decrepit, I've come to a point where I really don't care about it all that much anymore uh, on a personal level, except that I do. I care that we as a society recklessly engage what I've come to know as the idolatry of my youth. I've watched largely from a distance now as Cleveland neglects almost every other part of its civic life for its obsession with trying to overcome the heartbreak of the drive and the fumble. I'm disturbed uh, also as a person of faith at Christendom's dangerous conflation of the values of sport with the values of Christianity. So these are my reasons for recording this episode. And I know that as you listen, you might say to yourself, well, he's ignoring all the positive things about football, teamwork, discipline, whatnot. If that's the case, know that I'm not ignoring them. I've spent much of my life uttering those same defenses myself. I'm simply rejecting them outright for the purpose of this discussion. Uh, and as always, I want to encourage your angry or supportive responses, either at the Facebook page or our email, sectarianreview at gmail.com. And I even just booted up a Twitter account, hopeless as I am, in that medium. Um, so today, uh, I just want to kind of begin by introducing my uh, co-conspirators today. We have a, 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 a genuine celebrity with us today. We have uh, Todd Pedler of uh, Luther College. Todd, uh, most of you may know from the Book of Nature podcast, he's trying to, uh, I think, be the first person to appear on all the Christian Humanist podcasts uh, uh, at some point or here. So Todd, how's it going? <laughs> 
Well, I'll dispute the celebrity tag, but uh, uh, hey, you know it's a it, it's okay. I guess I'm the first one from from another of the network shows though to be on yours. So, Absolutely. So that's uh, that's good. No, uh, life's good. We're still in J term, and I'm not teaching it. So uh, so I'm 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 feeling relatively free, although I'm 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 definitely suffering from a first world problem in that my laptop just kicked it. Uh, <laughs> literally, literally four or five hours ago, it must be. So uh, I'm I'm still in the, I'm still in mourning. I guess I should be wearing black. But, uh, but and uh, Todd is joining us from Linux today, actually, because of this issue. So we'll see how this yeah, works out. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. No, but life, uh, life here at Luther is good. Uh, always the revolutionary. Always. That's that's yeah. right. Uh, and Todd and I are joined both by or both joined by uh, Drew Vantland. Uh, our regular. Uh, Drew, how's it going around there in Kentucky? Uh, pretty good. School got canceled today. Um, actually, the area schools have been closed for the last couple of days. They finally got around to canceling um, university classes. So, yeah, I'm just tucked away at home. Uh, we've got several inches already. We're supposed to get anywhere from, I've heard, like 8 to 16 or more in the next 24 hours. So, yeah, we my just way. Like, I'm at work right now. My wife went out and uh, bought some sleds that we can uh, hopefully uh, uh, make use of this weekend. <laughs> yes. Lemons to lemonade. You know, yeah, exactly. Right. You know. That's it. Um, well, uh, before we begin, actually, I want to uh, address. We did have a response through Charles Hackney, who Todd knows from the Book of Nature uh, podcast. He actually uh, responded to our uh, previous episode about horror films, and it's actually just kind of uh, serendipitous that I even found his. Comment. He commented on the Christian Humanist page, which I I don't typically look at. So uh, in the future, if anybody wants to comment, please uh, use something that I'm aware of. It's just lucky that I found it. Uh, uh, so, but I want to read what he said. It's actually pretty interesting. Uh, based on your recommendation, I just watched the Babadook, and in a Hackneyan phrase, great googly moogly. Uh, <laughs> That was the best horror film I've seen since The Conjuring. I want to gush about the film, but anything I say would be spoilers. So I'll just say, anyone reading this who either likes intelligently written horror or wants to see a movie about the destructive power of grief, watch this film, in all caps. And he asked a question that I wanted to uh, uh, follow up on um, just briefly, and if you guys can, um, you're more than welcome to as well. He said, you briefly talked about theoretical approaches to horror. Uh, his dissertation involved uh, existential psychology, so that's generally how I roll. Can anyone recommend a good existential approach uh, to understanding the appeal and the power of the horror genre? Uh, two things occurred to me, and I, I, I really don't know if they fit into what he's actually talking about, um, but there is a, a terrific book for anybody else who's interested in this. It's a, a philosophy book called The Philosophy of Horror by Noel Carroll. Uh, and it's a very British philosophy, kind of logical uh, in, in its uh, orientation. And he gets into very uh, various aspects of the horror genre. Uh, I used to own that book, and I was going to review it a little bit, but uh, I must have lent it to some deadbeat and never got it back. So <laughs> I can't speak. Well, I'm just speaking from memory about it. But uh, that is a good source for anybody who wants to sort of dip their toe into uh, maybe some of the reasons why people are drawn to that genre. And another thing, a, a, a book that I do you know, refer to every now and then um, 
by Barbara Creed. It's called The Monstrous Feminine, and it's a, uh, a, a psychoanalytic feminist perspective on the horror films, and it's fab fabulous. It's actually, I mean, I have never been able to see horror films in the same way. It's utterly convincing to me in her reading uh, of horror. And so if you're interested in some more scholarly uh, resources to that, those are two things I can think of. Uh, Drew, do you have anything about this, or Todd? No, I think Ed's the guy we should be talking to. Unfortunately, yeah. he's not with us today. Yeah, Ed has a stupid dissertation to write, so, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, uh, oh. Well, anyway, uh, I just wanted to get that out. Thanks to Charles for um, um, posing a question. I, I enjoy speaking uh, to people because, A, it lets me know that people are actually listening, which is nice to know every now and then. And so uh, if you have any questions or any comments about anything uh, that we talk about on the show, please do feel free to uh, uh, look us up. We're pretty easy to find at this point. Um, and with that, I want to shoot off the first question. I basically have three questions we're going to look at today. We're going to end with something about the cultural ramifications of our football obsession, what I'm claiming is a football obsession. Uh, before that, we're going to talk a little bit about the economic uh, impact that this has on us. But I want to kind of begin a more uh, maybe theological and philosophical uh, realm. Um, and I'm going to pitch this one to Todd. Uh, I just mentioned the term idolatry in my prologue, and I stand by it, but I'm open to debate. Uh, what is idolatry, just in general, and how might it be related to American football? Well, um, so you, you're not going to get a whole lot of a whole lot of dispute from me, I don't I, I don't suppose. But but uh, by beginning by way of definition makes sense. So in the most simple terms, I mean. It, Idolatry we think of as the worship of something other than the true and living God, right? Uh, worship here doesn't necessarily have to be defined in the strictest sense uh, for this definition of idolatry to serve our purposes, I think, in talking about this. Um, perhaps better is the replacement of God in one's affections with something uh, either you know, e either literally or, or in practical terms. Um, just for the purpose of definition, though, I mean, we can go to... Uh, for my my own Christian tradition is is Reformed Presbyterian, so I, I jump to Westminster. Westminster Shorter Catechism speaks of man's purpose as uh, as being to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And in the Confession of Faith from Westminster, we have uh, clear implications that anything that detracts from that, anything that anyone finds deeply satisfying in the place of God, is is uh, is a potential, a potential temptation for or sign of idolatry. Um, from the continent, uh, from the Heidelberg Catechism, we've got definition that idolatry is having or inventing something in which one trusts in place of, or importantly, alongside of the only true God who has revealed himself in the word. Um, trust, I can already hear it. I can hear people saying, oh, it's not trust. It's not trust that I have. Well, uh, you know, a deeply committed fan of a given team says, you know, it's it's not it's not about that. It's not about trust. I can still love the Crimson Tide uh, and God side by side. There's no competition here. But really, I think it's worth looking at. And I think you're asking this question is is really getting at something that's important in our psyche. I think to what degree is one's team loyalty or football obsession, as you say? Um, uh, when is it the, the the thing that brings the deep lows and the deep or the ecstatic highs to one's life? Um, John Calvin uh, noted famously in the Institutes of the Christian Religion that the human heart is an idol factory. Um, it's natural to us. It's part of what we do. 
and he didn't mean tiki idols like those in the Brady Bunch vacation in Hawaii, you know, <laughs> that we all remember. Um, he's talking, though, about, as the Heidelberg says, any of those things that vie for our ultimate affections, our ultimate allegiance with God, uh, and those things that we may only even periodically give ourselves over to for first priority. So I think, yeah, the shoe fits here. Um, for many, I think, I, yeah, and I I'd include myself, uh, certainly at times. I mean, if we think of idolatry as something primarily involving the affections, the deep-seated emotions that are sort of the core of our being um, as human beings, then idolatry is easily part of the picture for, for, for many fans. Um, if you find yourself moping about when your team is bounced from the playoffs, um, have you given your too much support. You know, when the game becomes the one thing you're looking forward to over a period of two or three weeks, the thing that drives you in your daily, uh, you know, in your daily highs and lows, well, at least I got the game to look forward to, right? Uh, I, it, it's not common, and I hate to say this, but it's not common that I say, well, we've got worship on Sunday to look forward to. Um, and that's, you know, that's my own thing, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Seahawks fan, so, uh, you know, from, from when they stank. So, I mean, you know, this is a lifelong thing for me. That's where I grew up. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think it's hard to argue the contrary. I think it's hard to argue that this doesn't take the form of idolatry, at least sometimes for some people. Um, and we can get into this, too, later, but, I mean, who can deny the religious nature of Super Bowl Sunday? I mean, it's sacramental, you know, in many in many ways. Um, and it's kind of funny to compare today's Super Bowl Sunday with the early days of the NFL, the fledgling little, uh, you know, relatively local and regional game um, that that once was. But no, I think you're I think you're fine to use that word. I think it fits. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate the support, uh, Drew. Yeah. So um, there's a book by Bob Gutzbard. Uh, who's a Christian economist from 30 years ago called Idols of Our Time, I think. Um, and he talks about idols being um, kind of what you were saying, Todd, that they're misdirected worship, but in particular, uh, um, the nature of idolatry is it's ultimately oriented towards human constructions that kind of lose their... Um, we lose our awareness of their constructed nature. So we give our our power to something that we create, um, whether that's physical tiki, you know, um, uh, statues, or whether it's ideas or, or even ideologies. Um, but then ultimately, that constructed nature, um, you know, which which is good, that, that comes from the fact that we are co-creators and made to um, continue making and remaking creation. Um, we forget that it's construction, and um, it comes to more power over us. Uh, to the degree that we forget that it's not just the way things are, that we have, have helped to produce it. Um, and so I think that we have this problem all the time with all kinds of systems around us um, when it comes to our serious work, whether that's our jobs or our governmental systems or you know just kind of the way things are. We have a really hard time um, naming the depths to which the status quo um, kind of permeates and shapes our lives. And so if we forget that in our, when it comes to the serious things in life, it, it, you would think it'd be easier for us to remember that about the more playful side of our lives. And yet, as you are both pointing out, the, the dedication and the, the utter seriousness with which we approach this game, um, I, yeah, I see that as problematic, and I, I, I can see idol, uh, idolatrous tendencies kind of weaving their way into our 
our consciousness. I, uh, I want to take one second. You'd mentioned the author of this Idols of Our Time, Bob Grutzbarb. Is that the name? Yes. Yeah, he's oh. a uh, Dutch um, uh, re reformational economist. Okay. He was active in uh, uh, fighting apartheid in South Africa. Okay. So he's very I, uh, familiar with the way that ideology and idolatry are connected. I, uh, I want to make a point at, at sort of putting these links up on the Facebook page as we talk about these things because I want I would like this to be something that spins out into conversations that last beyond the hour or whatever that we talk and so um, and so I'm going to uh, jot that down just for my own memory um, and uh, I want to like kind of bounce off of what both of you guys are saying I feel like one thing about football in particular there's nothing particular about football that makes it idolatrous right I, I, like anything can become this. Uh, and it's just Kentucky Wildcat football, for instance. Yeah, uh, basketball. Well, oh, times, but yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and I feel like uh, the whole point of this, um, oh, I guess uh, what we're talking about now is because football just happens to be the thing right now that um, takes up so much of our um, collective consciousness, and particularly at the time the NFL is a gigantic business and is pushing the, the football calendar year to a year-round thing. There's not even a break. Uh, like We're already talking about combines and drafts and things like this uh, before the Super Bowl even happens. By the way, we're recording this just before the championship game, so this should be up before the Super Bowl, just to kind of throw some cold water on your celebrations, um, hopefully. But, uh, but I do want to say also that there's something seemingly good about it, right? I, and I think the thing about an idol is it's a, a, a physical replacement for something more kind of divine, something that we can kind of touch and feel and, uh, and literally sort of be with. Um, and, and I think that in terms of um, what football does is people, particularly in Christendom, and this is one thing that kind of bothers me, um, having lived three years in Georgia, an SEC country, um, I mean, it's a major part of church culture is football down there, and, and, and as it is in Big Ten schools, I'm sure, as well. But... Um, uh, but I feel like it's so easy to sort of make uh, football really part of the Christian experience without knowing that it's standing in um, as a replacement <laughs> to, to a degree for it. Uh, and uh, I, I feel like it's just like weirdly seductive, almost like the Tolkien's Ring of Power. Um, uh, do you guys have anything to say about that? I, I mean, I'm not... I, clearly, I'm not from SEC country. Um, although I've got, you know, I've got good friends who have have come from there. Um, uh, a good friend of mine, Harold Luther, is a uh, graduate of Auburn, and uh, you know what what she talks about is it is really the revolving of culture around tailgate, and you know. The revolving of, of you know the day after the day after is Sunday, they're you're all in church. They're all talking about you know how how you know they <laughs> the wicked rivals from Tuscaloosa you know uh, just destroyed their 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 their, their week. Um, but yeah, the rhythm of life you know, and whether we're talking NFL or 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 college, it doesn't really matter. But when the rhythm of life is dictated by this phenomenon, um, it really can be a dangerous thing, and and uh, yeah, you know, I think the thing that makes the NFL, in particular, as opposed to baseball, as opposed to the NBA, which sort of has this 
uh, you know, bad reputation as not real sport, at least among people I know. You know, college basketball is the basketball you ought to watch, not not the NBA. Um, you know, and, and hockey, all of those are, you know, situated at random times throughout the week, right? Um, but Sunday, you, you, you're guaranteed you've got the game on Sunday. Sometimes Saturday, although they've moved away from that somewhat, you know, always got a Monday night game, and now they got Thursday night, and I hear... I hear they're angling for a second Thursday night game now, um, but but it's the weekly rhythm, it's the cal, it, the calendar effect of, of knowing you got the game every week that I think makes it a prime target because we, we we're time bound creatures, right? We live by rhythms, we live by seasons and and and, and whatnot, and I think that makes the NFL a little bit different. It makes college football, too, for that matter. It's every Saturday, right? You know it's coming yeah. up on a week-to-week basis. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I, I visited churches in the South that, I, I mean, to me, the only real reason they existed was to give people a place to talk about the game from the day before, right? And, and so, <laughs> That's the first thing that um, comes up, right? Yeah. And, and so, yeah, I, uh, I hate to sound like a jerk. Well... I don't hate it enough, probably, but um, I I realize I'm sounding like a jerk here a bit, and I'm making broad statements, but um, only because this is so pervasive in our culture. This is such a gigantic aspect of American culture that um, I feel like we need to pay more attention to what it's doing to us, and, and so this is uh, the whole point of that. Um, uh, Drew, um, uh, I think you probably have some interesting uh, economic uh ideas about this uh, sport as well. Um, I think, uh, I, well, I already threw Cleveland under the bus for what I think is a misappropriation of its economic resources. If you ever drive through Cleveland, there's uh, potholes everywhere, but uh, they can still find $20 million to give to the Browns owner to fix the stadium and that sort of thing. Um, can we talk with some specifics about the economics of the sport in America? <laughs> um, and what are some positive arguments that one might make for our investment in the game? And why are those arguments silly? Yeah, so I have a few thoughts on that. Um, first thing that comes to mind is my own upbringing, where I grew up in a small town um, where there was a, a public high school where my dad taught and a um, private Christian high school uh, right down the road from me. And as is common in, um, at least as, as I've seen in Christian school cultures, there's not usually enough money or enough um interest or, or willpower to put together football teams, um, whereas for public schools, that seems to be kind of a given. Now, again, this is the Midwest. This is my own experience. I could be wrong. But at a certain point in high school, the uh, the Christian school rallied and raised enough money to start a team, and um, it's still going strong as far as I know. Um, and so then we had kind of two you know, football teams. I grew up playing football. My dad's a coach uh, for at the junior high level, but he always had a very, what I thought was a, a healthy attitude toward it. Um, he, he, being a teacher, he, uh, academics were always first and foremost for him, and I think that um, that priority played into how he thought about athletics in general. Uh, and in a small town, yeah, athletics do take kind of center stage in a lot of ways. I mean, I don't think it was quite the degree of Friday Night Lights territory, but um, but yeah, sports were very uh, influential in kind of shaping the the rhythms of the community life. So when it comes to economic issues, um, I mean it's an expensive game. It's 
it takes a lot to invest in the equipment. It takes, um, yeah, I mean, there, there's more people on the field at any given time, so you need to have more people involved, which means, you know, so it's the the money compounds. Um, that doesn't really answer the question, is it worth it or not? And that, I think, brings us to the question of investment. And I think that's a really loaded term in a good way, um, but I don't think we always recognize that there's at least two senses to investment. Um, on the one hand, it's saying this is this is worth dedicating myself to, my resources to, my time to, whether that's as a um, an athlete, and I, I put that in kind of scare quotes because I was technically on the varsity football team. I think I probably saw less than five minutes of, of field time that entire year, and that's totally fine with me. Uh, <laughs> I'd rather not be making a fool of myself. Um, but there's that, you know, attending practices and stuff, investing as a uh, an athlete, investing as a coach, um, but then also investing <clears> as a community member, businesses which would support, um, you know, the team in various ways. And I realize I'm talking at a very local level, and we're talking more about pro football. But I think this is these are the seeds, um, and it's kind of a feedback loop, right? That the the pro culture relies on the interest in football at the kind of high school level. Um, and that prepares people for the college level and then ultimately, um, you know, those few who make it to the pros. So it's this feedback loop, and I think um, the way that money gets into it is the other side of investment, which is not just saying this is worth doing for its sake. It's worth pursuing um, as a community, as, a, you know, whatever, as an individual. But investment in the, the strict sense of what am I going to get out of this um, which really, that's the, the commercial um, kind of capitalistic enterprise um, at, at the that pro levels, but I think that in, more, in other sports more clearly than college football. I'm not sure. I don't really watch it. But um, there, the, the sense of investment is very much a personal, ultimately a personal thing, right? It's like, I'm going to get something financial out of this. It happens to be football. Um, and that relies kind of uh, manipulatively on lots of people's personal, passionate in, uh, investments in the other sense, right? So I think it's important to, to recognize that um, several things are going on in, in that sense of investment, and they're, they're different yardsticks to measure um, value. And I think in some ways it can highlight the difference between um, something being an icon and something being an idol. Uh, that, that those pairs don't entirely map onto each other. But uh, I think with an idol, you, you're definitely trying to use something. You're trying to get something out of it. And with an icon, you're, you're trying to let um, something greater than yourself, ultimately God, right, in the, in the Orthodox sense, um, be mediated through physical, more tangible um, manifestations or something like that. Uh, so those were some thoughts I had, just especially around the ambiguity of the term investment. Um, yeah, that's uh, interesting. One thing I want to, we may come back to this before I, I shoot over to Todd, um, is I, I wonder how much we can actually um, identify even local high school football as anything but socialist. Uh, I mean, uh, to me, you're, if anything else is like we're going to uh, use all these tax dollars to fund an activity that relatively few people will take part of or will actually uh, benefit from um, in the community, 
we would call that socialism and it would not be American, right? Right. And, and, and yet in football somehow <laughs> we totally ignore this. I think right. I, I, from high school football all the way up to the public funding of stadiums, which Todd I think has some uh, information uh, about. Um, uh, I mean, I, I don't I don't know that capitalism really fits as a descriptor. Yeah, and just one more thought on that. The the rhetoric of teamwork is something that I would typically be really cynical of, but I felt it enough that I had quit playing football my junior year, or quit being on the team. I wasn't really playing anyway. Um, and I came back my senior year because I loved that sense of camaraderie. Um, it, there was just something invigorating about that. And I think you're right. It's a, it is a socialist impulse. And it seems like that's something that erodes the higher you go it, towards professional level uh, playing. It becomes much more individualistic, and, and that's unsurprisingly so. Um, although I think it, in terms of the fan base, you see other sorts of um, I guess dark socialisms, not not socialism in the sense of pulling together, but but you definitely see a tribalistic. Oh, yeah. uh, the, 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 maybe that's another issue. No, no, no. Yeah, the the tribalism that <laughs> that that probably will come up when we start talking about culture. But yeah, right. that, that is absolutely part of it. Todd. Well, yeah. I mean, just just to finish off on that thought. I mean, these are our mighty warriors. These are our mighty men that we're going to watch on the battlefield, um, and live our li- You know, live vicariously through. Yeah, in, in in some real sense, um, and and to I I took this question actually totally in the in, in the professional route just because we were already going down that uh, that direction I guess and I hadn't really thought about the local stuff so Drew I think uh, thank you for that because that's it really is uh, some interesting uh, thoughts to you know to, to apply this to the local level I think in West Texas high school you see a lot you know even more manifested some of the things that you've been, you've been describing. Because uh, the whole town really does show up. I mean, it, you know, that's, it's, uh, and, the, and the town I grew up, I grew up in, my, my, up through ninth grade, I, I grew up in a town of 600. Actually, I didn't live in town. So I was, <laughs> I was in the, the rural, uh, you know, reaches out beyond this town of 600. But Friday night there, that's what you, you know, that's what you did. You, you showed up. And the whole darn town showed up. I mean, the stadium seating, I think, Easily outstrip the, the the local population, and everyone was there. Um, but uh, to think about this in terms of the NFL and and, and whatnot, you know, that we usually this the, this question of investment, the question of economics, raises its head whenever the owners of a team decide they need a new stadium, which happens frequently, or are going to move. Um, in which case, the city rallies around the idea of doing everything they can to keep the city, you know, keep the team in the town. Or when a city is trying to attract a team that's moving from elsewhere, it's usually around the question of a stadium. Um, and the arguments made are almost always economic. I mean, uh, of these situations, the best one I know of is of Seattle. Um, when the Seahawks were playing in, in uh, what I can't call anything other than the decrepit mausoleum known as the Kingdom uh, in the mid to late 90s, uh, the Mariners had left to their new stadium, Safeco Field, which was constructed just south of where the Kingdom was. There was a lot of talk about what to do. Um, there was a refurbishment of bond vote that failed, and the owner of the Seahawks, who was a guy uh, who I can only call a real-life Ziggy, <laughs> uh, at least by his physical resemblance, uh, or depending on your pop cultural preferences, you might call him an Alfred Hitchcock lookalike. Um, his name is Ken Baring. Uh, he made several threats to move the team 
um, because they had failed in their attempts to get refurbishment done to the kingdom. Um, and he's going to move it to L.A., who had lost its football teams and, of course, is in the current news at the moment. Um, uh, Paul Allen um, stepped in, bought the team with the intent, you know, on the condition that a new stadium uh, bond vote would be held and, and publicly financed to some degree. He formed this organization called First and Goal, which was sort of a citizen's grassroots advocacy group to build the new stadium and keep the Seahawks there. Um, eventually, it did capture at least some segment of the public imagination. Um, uh, the stadium plan involved both the NFL and the idea that they would be trying to attract an MLS team, a soccer team. Um, Seattle is huge for soccer. I mean, you know, soccer there has been huge for a very, very long time. Um, and they had a team in the old NASL, but, uh, but, but then when it folded, there was no longer any professional soccer. So they, they, they thought they would attract an MLS team like this, and they have, and they've been extraordinarily successful. Um, but the bond bills passed. They passed at 51%, um, which is not an uncommon figure for these kinds of things. Um, and the arguments made at the time, I was watching from afar, because I, I, was, I was gone from the Northwest already. You know, this was like 1997-1998-1999. But uh, the downtown area of Seattle, which held the kingdom, and uh, would, would be potentially without, there'd be no tenant anymore for the kingdom, so you'd have this immense structure with no, nothing except, uh, you know, monster truck races and tractor pulls um
um, to, to go to the football game. So um, they really don't bring in a whole lot of new money. The question whether they bring in tourists is a different, a different one, but I think it's hard to, to make that argument. Um, the NFL, interestingly, actually, uh, in, in a, I guess the last lockout in the NFL was 2011, 12, something like that. Um, during those arguments, I was just reading an article this morning, um, the NFL actually said, um, it's, it's very interesting, you know, the, the threat was we may call off the whole season. And all the cities went up in arms. Um, and the NFL said, no, you know, there's, there's really little impact if there's no NFL action next season. <laughs> People are going to find other ways to, to spend their money, which is just crazy to me because they argue both sides of the issue, right? Um, but, yeah, I, I don't know. We could talk a lot about this, I mean, especially with the new move, right, with the move of teams now. Right. Um, the NFL is really wrapped in here, economically speaking. You know, they're, yeah. they're, what are they bringing in? $600 million, $650 million per team yeah. uh, that are moving? And, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. What do, you th what do you think? Well, I mean, I think that it's... The NFL, I mean, I think it's essentially criminal the way that they um, extort uh, money from local municipalities um, for this reason. And and, and the idea that it, it has some economic benefit, I think, is just silly. Uh, a case in point, I mean, I have a... This is just sort of a, a anecdotal story, but my former neighbor in Cleveland was a Brown season ticket holder, and um, and he was unemployed for three years and kept his brown season tickets. Okay, so uh, tell me <laughs> that money was not going else in, into the community. It wasn't even going into his own household, right? And and to me, this was a uh, um, a ridiculous um, a, a example of why it's such a, a focused spending that I mean, typically the kinds of you have a few bars and a few restaurants that are probably the economic impact that you're talking about in the downtown, um, and and that's that's going to benefit from a uh, uh, an NFL team particularly, and so to I argue that it's going to have this vast-reaching uh, economic redevelopment is just ridiculous, particularly if the team stinks and, and no one's going to go, right? And, and so, um, as this is my experience of things, right? And so, uh, Todd, you had sent me this uh, article from uh, was it Reason magazine? Yeah. Uh, uh, Reason.com uh, by Jared Meyer, and the title's great. You might as well watch the NFL playoffs. You're paying for them, uh, and, and he goes and gives all these examples of what you're talking about. And the one about the Arizona Cardinals is, is hilarious. Uh, since 2006, the Cardinals have played at the University of Phoenix Stadium, which is hilarious because <laughs> University of Phoenix doesn't actually exist as a new, uh, you know, and so. Um, uh, in Glendale, Arizona, though Glendale only has 240,000 residents, state and local taxpayers picked up $312 million of the stadium's $455 million cost. And this is more than 40% of the city's debt comes from its sports complexes. Okay, And this is, to me, if you're looking at in terms of investment, this is the very least a very poor investment. Um, and, and, and so I think that it's absolutely um, ridiculous that um, that we don't even care about this. You know, I mean, we can like football, but we should know that we're ignoring these factors. I guess this is yeah. what I'm talking about. And we haven't even begun talking about college football and the, the costs that that uh, incurs to um, both financial and sort of academic yeah. and, and social costs uh, <laughs> that that has uh, on, on college campuses. Um, so. Well, yeah, we got to talk about that too. I think I, I think we will we'll, we'll do that later, but. 
I mean, one thing I just I also just read this morning is apparently the city of St. Louis still owes a hundred million dollars on the stadium that the Rams just left. Yeah. <laughs> Which is yeah. Just like ah. <laughs> and what are they going to do with it now? You know, I mean, this is this is worse than an empty shopping mall, really. Now, some spokesman for the city said, "Well, you know, this, you know, we won't have it locked up for what all ten Sundays that they had it locked up, <laughs> you know." So, so you know, trying yeah. to put a positive spin on this, yeah, we'll be able to attract more citywide events. Oh, come on, they'll have American Idol tryouts or something uh, <laughs> once a year. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Drew, do you have anything else to add to this? Uh, not to this. I'm uh, pretty excited about the next section. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, let's let's move on to that then. Yeah. Um, and, and honestly, all of these topics, the kind of spiritual uh, subject of idolatry, the economic uh, arguments, and the cultural, they're very difficult to disentangle. And, and we realized that, but um, had to organize it in some way. So uh, we'll shoot this one back to Todd then. Uh, and we'll sort of uh, use this as a launch pad into the end of the show. Uh, uh, so the cultural impact. So everyone knows that Marx called religion the opiate of the masses and something to keep the proletariat uh, proletariat content in an oppressive system. Uh, certainly he would replace that with football today. No. Uh, what cultural impact does the football industrial complex, the title of this episode, uh, impose upon us? Yeah. It's... Um... Well, one one thing, and I, and I think this this we can go, and we, we will we will hit all the previous subjects with this question. I think, in one way or another. But I mean, I I, I think it's it's interesting to ask, and so that you know, answering a question with a question, It'd be interesting to ask where in the country and un, with with what segments of the population, most particularly, is football fever the most ingrained. Um, and, I, and I, again, I, I'm not just talking professional football here. I'm talking about college football. I'm talking about high school football. I'm talking about Pop Warner football, whatever. Where is it most likely ingrained? And I don't see it in the big cities so much. I see it in the I see it in rural America. I see it in the rural South for sure. The, certainly the rural Midwest. I mean, although wrestling might you know take a, 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 a an equal pl- place at the table. With, with in, in, in that respect. Um, but it's among, oftentimes, it's among people um, who are, and I guess this ties back to the previous, who are the less economically advantaged um, in, 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 in some respects. So that's one thing. This is one, one thing that I think is very interesting. But the other thing is, I wonder whether the football industrial complex, as you call it, um, and as it's apparently very popular to call it, because I Googled it once and it's all over the place, <laughs> uh, people are talking about it. But um, I wonder how much that fuels an obsession with sports that goes down to the six-year-old. You know, I mean, it goes all the way down to the six-year-old. And when I look at, um, you know, it's, it, when I look at society, look at just my neighbors, look at my, my, my town, um, sports and kids are intertwined like I've never seen before. Um, not in my upbringing, you know. Um, it's very, very different than the 70s, 80s uh, uh, society that I grew up in in the Northwest, um, that you see so much dedication of everything to the sports activities of the kids. I mean, it is, uh, it's crazy when I think of the fact 
the parents of all the kids around here that I know, um, what they spend on travel, just travel to games. I mean, when I was a kid and we had away games, I mean, I played all, I played sport. I played soccer. I didn't play football. I played soccer. I played basketball. I played baseball. I played baseball all the way through college. Um, when I had an away game, I got on the bus and I went. And nobody came. <laughs> uh, my family wasn't there. My extended family wasn't there. Um, and the same was true for my brother. I mean, we both did travel leagues. We both did, you know, a, a fair bit of activity, but nothing like what I see now. And the family expectations are nothing like I see now. And maybe this is just my own pocket of the upper Midwest. Um, but parents go to every single game. Uh, it's we're, my, Our family is sort of looked... I, I won't say it's really seriously this bad, but I feel like we're looked down upon as the weird ones who don't go to every away game. Um, but we don't, you know. But my, you know, my, and in being in rural Northeast Iowa, our travel is two, three hours sometimes, you know, to the nearest school of the same size. I mean, we're a fairly large school, but in our region there just aren't any uh, that, that are big. So normal trips for away games are two hours, maybe two and a half, maybe three. Um, and, but parents all go. They all go, and they, they schlep themselves because they, they largely can't take their kids. The kids go on the bus, and they drive their own vehicles. Um, but they go everywhere, and wherever they go, the grandparents will go to. So the grandparents, maybe they've moved up to the Twin Cities, which is an hour and a half to our north. They'll come down. I've got friends that I can think of whose kids in college, they continue the same uh, the same shtick, and they'll go and they'll drive to wherever the college's team has gone, and it's every single weekend. You know, I've got kids who are in college in the Twin Cities. I, not my, myself personally, but um, of, of, of friends of ours, and the parents and the whole family. Everybody will pack into the van and they'll drive. I've got a freshman advisee who plays basketball for Luther, um, and her, she's from Green Bay. And her dad, at least, comes for every single game. Um, and I think it's 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 great to support your kids. And I don't want to I don't want to say that that shouldn't be. But this mentality of just the whole family going to every activity and the kids being involved in a sport every time, you know, at all times of the year, um, I don't necessarily see that as healthy, hmm. um, especially when they. You know, the school districts will come and say, oh, but, you know, kids who are active in sports do better in school. And so you, we want every kid to be in at least two or if not three extracurricular activities. Um, and that, that, that just adds to it. So, I mean, our, our kids are so hyper overscheduled um, that I just don't, I don't know. So I, I guess I feel the biggest cultural impact biggest societal impact at the level of the local where sort of the overemphasis on sports culture has driven itself down into the roots of, of, of the society um, and I don't know I don't I don't I see activity as healthy I'm still athletic I still play basketball uh, but it's really disturbing at times I, I mean this is what makes it a complex though right I mean it's exactly. it's a whole set of interrelations this um this activity, uh, Ramshi would call it a hegemony, right? And, and so um, we have um, um, that going on, but I'm stepping yeah. over through. Yeah. Um, 
but uh, before I send it to Drew, before I before I get the foot set my foot off of Drew, um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> he, uh, uh, you mentioned a thing about the high school. My good friend and pastor uh, Rob Osborne, he um, uh, post retweeted with some snarky commentary a, a tweet from our local school system that said sports are awesome for these various reasons so everyone should play at least three sports uh, and, and I'm like like you could say the thing, same thing about being in the theater program you know what I'm saying like those, those activities can still uh, any other kind of activity can also instill these positive values or these good yeah. life lessons um, somehow we're just unable to see beyond um, this out of our outside of our sports lens um, and so that's something yeah. I want to talk about in a minute but uh, but drew I'm sorry uh, you're champ champing at the bit here no so I, w I would push back against Todd a bit um, not because I have a burning love of sports I don't uh, I, there's no sport I play anymore uh, let alone basketball I was never tall enough for that but um, the the family, I, I guess I'm thinking of this in relation to other kind of common criticisms of today's kids and families, and it seems to me like, on the one hand, my wife and I are talking about how we're going to raise our kids um, in relationship to how we were raised, and we came from very different backgrounds, kind of rural versus suburban, um, and my family was, I like both sets of grandparents and my parents were at like all the activities I was in, and I was in it, you know, almost everything, um, so I really appreciated that. On the other hand, I'm not going to do that for my kids. Like I, I'm not going to. I, in fact, I would discourage them from being so kind of overcommitted. Um, not because I think that means they need to spend all their time studying or something, but uh, because there's so many other things that I think aren't um, that I want time for in my life. And looking back, I wish I would have spent time on as a high schooler uh, that just you don't have time for. Um, various kinds of volunteer activities and, you know, community building. And I think sports can be a part of that, but I think there are other, um, even more kind of pro-social outlets that social outlets that I'm going to try to encourage my kids to be a part of. Um, but I don't think that it's necessarily a bad thing that families are, are rallying around their kids, um, especially kids who are doing physical activities. And I say this as a oh. fairly sedentary person. Um, that to me is a less troublesome tendency than the kind of couch potato video gaming. Oh, no uh, doubt. Which I, I might see as even more uh, deserving of the title of today's Opiate of the Masses. <laughs> they call uh, it, no, by the I way, they call that eSports now, which yeah. I think is hilarious, uh, yeah. but, but go ahead. I agree, Drew, and I, and I, and I, and I, I want to make sure that my critique is not hitting the wrong target. I mean, I so I'm... I'm all for the family activity. I, I think that's great. But I guess what I see here, and again, it may be my local thing, although it, sound, it sounds like Danny's got the same issue. Um, it's, it's, the, it's the norm for students who are athletes to be in at least three, if not four, sports. So, I mean, they are around the clock, around the calendar, in the sports. Now, one good thing we've got going for us is that little email that went out to our local district spoke of extracurriculars. So we have very, very, very good music here. And so, uh, and lots of opportunities for students to participate in music. So usually they're doing all that too. And we've got, you know, we've got uh, a mock trial and, and, and debate, which are also really, really good. And, you know, many times students are doing three of those at once. 
I'm I'm mostly talking about the overscheduling that occurs with sports, so that it's a seven day a week thing, and right. families don't have any time for the kinds of things that you know, you're talking right. about. I think it's at least it's great that the families are together because that's probably the only time they get mm. um, when when students are heavy into sports. Right. Um, you know, we just have our kids. Uh, we I've got kids from 15 down to eight. And the eight, you know they're all doing some kind of athletic uh, activity, but it's like one sport at once, um, and that's that's partly because we've talked about it this way, but it's partly their own interest, and they're just not interested in buying into the structure that's around them uh, so much. But even at the level that we're talking about, so right now uh, being winter, I've got one kid who's who's in gymnastics, but she'll also do soccer um, when the time comes. Um, I've got one kid who's doing dance right now. Um, she also plays soccer, um, so she's out of season there, but she's in dance. I've got one kid uh, who's not doing a sport right now. She does cross-country and track. And then my oldest is um, is not doing any sports, but is doing um, large group speech uh, stuff. I still find just with that small level of commitment that it's hard to get the family all in the same room for more than an hour any on any given day. Um, and so I just, you know, the, maybe I'm just harping on the overscheduling of kids, um, which I see as pervasive in our culture. Um, and sports, at least in this neck of the woods, is really, really a big part of that. So I've got, you know, the costs have got to be counted too. And I guess maybe that's where I want to go, not so much to say that it's just patently evil for True. Um, yeah. Go ahead. You you had uh, some things to say about this topic, so we could shift gears a bit. Yeah. So thinking, so thinking about Marx's statement about um, you know religion being the opiate of the masses. Um, thinking about something Terry Eagleton says uh, in his book Why Marx Was Right, which everyone should read. Um, but he said, you know, Marx was actually a user of opium. Uh, he didn't. Uh, he didn't necessarily see well either uh, opioids or religion as uh, a necessarily bad thing, right? That's the way it typically gets taken up. Um, but rather that there comes a point where it stops being medicine and it starts being, um, mm. you know, a disease, and it it gets in the way of life, and it um, it's it channels that passionate energy which should be used for calling out injustice um, you know and it expends it on superfluous activities and I think we have a lot of things that do exactly that a lot of ways that we um, kind of let off our steam um, but I know a lot of people still seem to have enough passion left over to complain about the political system however the form that that takes I think is oftentimes pretty, fairly insignificant, and I include myself among this. I don't spend any time during the week dedicated to sports, but I have all kinds of other commitments um, of varying levels of, of uh, significance and seriousness, but um, I barely have any margin in my life to attend a protest or to um, show up at some kind of a rally or, or this or that um, in a purely political sense, and I, I think it, we don't need to confine it just to politics, but um, to you know greater ethical efforts in general. Um, 
I don't want to slip into what I've heard some pastors <laughs> saying from the pulpit, like, why can't every Sunday be like Super Bowl Sunday? Why can't we take that energy into the church? And it's like, well, because it's, it's a church, and we don't have Pentecostal roots, and we're pretty stoic white people in our, like, <laughs> not anymore, thankfully. The, the church I go to now is, is a bit more uh, charismatic and, and uh, ethnically diverse. But... Um, uh, yeah, but anyway, I don't want to make that kind of criticism, but I do think that you're right that sports siphons a lot of the the kind of revolutionary potential, um, and I, I've just been thinking in terms of time lately, it more so than almost anything else, even more in terms of than in terms of money or in terms of of energy or whatever. It's just having the time to. Um, attend things that matter. <laughs> it's really hard in our economy, and I don't think the way that we have structured football at any level is uh, is making that better. And uh, that that's one thing. The early part of our conversation was so much about the way that sports is used kind of in society. And, I, and here we're starting to get into some... Um, aspects of what it does basically uh, to us as we consume it and I think that that's a, uh, a an important distinction so all of those wonderful life lessons about teamwork and and uh, whatever discipline and all that's learning how to lose all those things that we we are kind of cliched that we say all the time about sports are, are true and wonderful right but when it becomes um, the entirety of your life it has the it shapes your desires to the sport itself Right? right, and so all you're ever doing or thinking about uh, is getting to the next event, practice, and doing the sport. Then the life lessons you are probably internalizing, but only in with regards to how they relate to that sport. That's uh, a great point. And, and so I feel like um, it has this way of of uh, of defining passions. And I know that in every stinking podcast that I ever sit on, I talk about Jamie Smith's book, <laughs> Desiring the Kingdom. I almost, I almost scooped you on that. I was going to bring it up. But, well, why don't you take it for me, then, Josh? I don't really have to do it. Go no, ahead. No, I was just going to, because I mentioned the sacramentalism of, of Super Bowl Sunday. Yeah. It reminds me exactly of the opening of, the opening of, of which book, I forget when, which one it is, where he talks about the people streaming in and out of the mall. Yeah, that's the no. first one, Desiring the Kingdom. Yeah, yeah, fantastic analogy, and it works perfectly here, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead and get, you know. No, get and, and yeah, the activity basically shapes what you're truly passionate about, what you, not yeah. only what you love, right? And, and, and what you love dictates what you do. And, and so with all the time and energy that we spend fretting um, over these um, minor things that we obviously spend too much money on, but I think we spend too much of our, our love on as well. And, and I think that that has um, real ramifications. And Drew, you had talked earlier, you'd mentioned something about um, political discourse. And it just occurred to me while you were talking that the uh, uh, our political discourse basically mimics our athletic, our, our sports discourse. Like, if you listen to sports talk radio, that is how we talk about politics, largely, in this in this country. And, and I don't think anybody would claim that's done us any favors then. Uh, and so, um, yeah, this is uh, the problems that I'm identifying. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting that um, I, I noticed a number of years ago that um, at least in movies and, and depictions or whatever I'd seen on TV, uh, the football community, like football coaches and, and players, would tend to talk about themselves in 
military terms, and the military tends to talk about themselves in athletic terms, particularly mm. with regard to football. Yeah. And so you get this um, this kind of crossover, and I found that really interesting in terms of, uh, I guess, like, yeah, semi-political discourse. Huh. I mean, what, what does down in the trenches come from? Mm. It's World, World War One, right? <laughs> right? I mean, it's a, it's a pretty gruesome, grim... Uh, Phrase to use if you're going to talk about the you know the two lines. But these are our Homeric heroes, as you mentioned before, Todd. Right, and and so <laughs> right. why not talk about them in in those sort of yeah. um, militaristic sort of terms? It, it, so yeah, it's true. But as someone who's read a bunch of World War Two, World War One uh, memoirs over the past year or so, I mean, it, it hits me <laughs> pretty hard to to hear this this, uh, this this language, even if I'm willing to use it myself. Yeah. Um, to to echo some of, uh, of this discussion of political discourse, I mean, if I if I watch, uh, you, you know, if you go to the NFL.com or whatever, and you look as I am want to do, well, at least not not now. Seahawks are out, so <laughs> I probably won't be doing it. But you know, I, I I've I've looked at the post game analysis and things like this, and the and the shows. It's amazing the level, the depth of analysis that these guys will commit to doing uh, of, of coaches' decisions and of players' uh, performances and so forth. And um, wouldn't, wouldn't it be wonderful if, if analysis of political candidates and positions and performances and so forth rose to that level uh, of, of commitment? I don't think it's there. I mean, mostly what we're getting in, in, uh, in the battles in the political sphere is trash talk. Right, there's so little substantive discussion, um, and I think we're we're losing out big time because of it. Uh, yeah. Anyway, no. I'm, yeah. I'm and back, so. on that on that point, a uh, very prominent candidate <laughs> has spoken in terms of winning and losing in, yes. in ec- extremely like athletic terms to describe the the success or failure of of his. Potential administration. <laughs> I, I will never. I mean, it's Donald Trump. I don't care what his name. But, uh, <laughs> but I'll, I'll never forget, like when he recently spoke at Liberty this week, um, quoting from the Bible, and he's absolutely clueless about how to even read the Bible. <laughs> two Corinthians, two Corinthians, one two, or whatever it was. It's just he has no idea how to state how to even state the verse he's trying to pander. Well, maybe he's been listening to to you know British paper, uh, preachers because they do, they do actually sometimes slip into. That. Language, but okay. so I'm not sure I'm willing to give him the charity. <laughs> so that brings me to another question, if I can interject, um, to kind of bring it back to the idolatry question. What do we make of the um, the fusion of kind of mainstream Christianity and football culture? Um, the I, sometimes it's cast as this very subversive thing and Tim Tebow is out there kind of, you know, playing for the Lord or something. But it's really not. It's pretty it seems pretty foundational, um, at at a lip service level at least, um, that God, country, football kind of go together. Uh, I don't know, what are your thoughts on that? Would it <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting. Um I I don't you know, I don't know. There there's I mean, Tebow does great on me at times, you know, when I hear that kind of a statement coming out of his mouth. Um, I do want to give him at least the, you know, 
the, the, the ability with Luther to say that I'm doing everything for, you know, God, whether I'm right. trash collecting or playing football. Right. Um, and I, I think with him, he's sort of a lightning rod, right? I mean, he, he does go over the top with his descriptions of, of what his dedication is, uh, is all about. Um, and, and people who are prone to knee-jerk at that do so, and then bring the level of dialogue about his particular choice of words or his particular choice to speak about his faith in that way. Uh, they, they bring the dialogue down into the ditch, you know, and there's no point in talking, you know, there's no, there's no useful result of, of the sort of back and forth that goes on about him. Um, you know, I, I don't know, maybe are you, are, if you're getting into the thing about the, you know, prayer circles that, that occur after basically every game and the, the known or notable Christians among the, the, the two teams often get together, you know, to see it with Russell Wilson. Russell Wilson's a, a, good, a, a good case in point. I mean, he's very openly Christian and is part of these sort of, these sort of gatherings. Um, and he himself has said things like, you know, uh, you know, God's God's with us, and, and and what have you. And I, I guess I don't want to judge that too harshly, um, although I want to you know avoid any kind of notion that God gives a rip, one way or the other, who wins. Um, but uh, you know, to the extent you've got genuine Christians participating in this, yeah, God's with him. God promises him to be with us to the end of the age. You know, He'll always be with us in what we do. Um, but yeah, there's a dangerous fusion there, as you say, uh, to be sure. Well, I, I think it's probably. I'm sorry, Danny. Go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead, Drew. I, I said I would definitely agree with you, Todd. That um, I would want to affirm that as well with Luther. You know, the um, kind of priesthood of all uh, occupations, right. and um, I think the the problem is the middle term of nationalism. That get, kind of gets in, inserted and infused between uh, individual and communal worship in in every form, right? In athletic form, um, and the kind of explicit articulation of "I'm I'm doing this for the glory of God." I think it's just so connected with jingoism and and uh, militarism and and all these other things, and it, that's already there. And so then to add this layer on top of it of uh, I'm doing this as a Christian or something, to me, I, that really, it rubs me the wrong way uh, because it just drives home the point that what Christianity here is signifying is basically American empire. Yeah. And well, God America. Yeah. yeah, and that's interesting. I mean, we didn't even talk about the... I don't know the sort of the the symbolic nature of football as a game itself, being sort of metaphorical for um, you know war and all that sort of thing. Um, and did you receive the old Rodney Dangerfield back to school? Uh, uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s character called it a crypto fascist metaphor for nuclear <laughs> war. Uh, uh, but uh, the uh, uh, the uh, the I guess the aspect of the whole Tim Tebow thing, I I really don't. It doesn't bother me if an athlete is openly Christian and, and annoyingly so. I, I think I, I have no qualms with that whatsoever. I, I, I sort of look at it from the the fans' perspective, and I think that Christians tend to look for people like that 
and as a way, to me, it's a way of justifying the idolatry uh, and, and, and saying this is a uh, this proves my point about what's so wonderful about this sport and 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 all that sort of thing. Um, though many of those same people get very disgusted when someone like uh, say Kareem Abdul-Jabbar makes a, a volatile political statement that they don't agree with, right? Um, and, and they support people like Michael Jordan, who is famously reticent about political issues and that kind of thing. They avoid that kind of representational uh, identity at that point. Uh, but when it's the Christian thing, oh, that's that's a great thing. And I noticed it, frankly, I, if I have any friends from Georgia who are listening to this, uh, I love you, but when Mark Richt got fired, uh, Facebook almost made me want to puke. Like, all the, like, tears about this good Christian man leading our boys in the battle and blah, blah, blah. Uh, like, I, I just literally wanted to gouge my eyes out. Uh, and so, um, not literally, okay. I just figuratively wanted to gouge my eyes out. Um, and so, yeah, to me, it's just sort of looking for someone that can help us sort of justify our waste of time. <laughs> so, uh, well, that, yeah. What's the ra- what's the radio program? Uh, gosh, uh, there's a Christian athlete radio program that used to air in Chicago when I was a grad student. Uh, golly, I forgot what it's called. I mean, it's on lots of Christian radio stations. Um, but it, you know, they they interview Christian athletes all the time, and all the discussion is uh, along the lines of Tebow, um, the way he sort of talks about his athleticism and, and, and of course, always ties it back to Paul's metaphors of athletes. And, and that's supposed to be the rah-rah rallying cry, but I think you're right. I think it's a cover. I think it's a cover in some sense. Yeah. Drop kick me, Jesus, through the goalposts of life. <laughs> that's, oh, there's our closing song. Oh, my gosh. How did I not think of that? I'm totally going to dig that up and put that on at the end. That's a, a great old terrible country song. Um, <laughs> that is, oh, that's lovely. Well done, Drew. Uh, <laughs> there are many things that we haven't talked about uh, in this podcast. And obviously, we just, I mean, we could be here all day, obviously. Mm-hmm complaining about things. And from my perspective, I, I understand that many things could be said, could be talked about in the same terms that we've just talked about football. It just so happens that football is the thing that everybody's wasting their time on for me. Um, and if it were something else, it would be something else. It's not baseball anymore. Maybe at one time it was baseball. Todd, you had sent me a, an amazing commercial from a, a Chevy commercial talking about apple pie and baseball and Chevy. Uh, and I'll pause right now and play a bit of that. America, what's your favorite sport? Baseball. Sandwich. Hot dog. Pie. Apple. And what's your favorite car, America? Chevrolet. You see, that's baseball, hot dogs, apple pie, and Chevrolet, huh? Right. Well, you sure sound like America to me. We are. Well, then you better tell me again, because I just might forget. We love baseball, hot dogs, apple pie, and Chevrolet. Baseball, hot dogs, apple pie, and Chevrolet. That's baseball, hot dogs, apple pie, and Chevrolet. Baseball and hot dogs. I think you better tell me again. Okay, that was hilarious, wasn't it? So, um, um, but there are other aspects of this. We've not even touched on the the concussion aspect of sports. We haven't talked about uh, male and female like uh, gender roles that are reinforced by this. There are many um, aspects of uh, of this 
very complicated topic that we just don't have time for, which I'm sorry for. Um, I've had a wonderful conversation. I do want to uh, uh, do our little review section. I have one uh, movie that I want to sort of talk about just real briefly uh, as a way to kind of maybe make this a little more lighthearted. Uh, and then if you guys have anything, I'll, I'll turn it over to you. But if you've ever seen the old uh, Marx Brothers movie, Horse Feathers. Uh, football is a major aspect of that, particularly collegiate football, uh, for whatever reason. Uh, Groucho Marx is installed as president of a, of a college, which is Huxley College, whose uh, Darwin is their uh, rival, which is a hilarious uh, <laughs> uh, rivalry to create in and of itself. There's so much subtext there. The comedies just can never be that smart today, I think. you know. But, um, but uh, uh, Darwin and Huxley have this great football rivalry, and Groucho Marx has all these uh, uh, great moments about uh, these great one-liners, as he always does, many of which are about football. Uh, but the ending scene, uh, in particular, is just hilarious. Uh, uh, Harpo is somehow commandeered uh, uh, like a trash pickup thing that's pulled by horses, and he brings this onto the field, and it sort of looks like a Roman chariot. And, and as the Marx Brothers are wont to do, they totally subvert the rules of football in order to secure uh, Huxley's win. But uh, that even that movie being made in 1929, 1930, whatever it is, uh, probably 30, early 30s at least, um, like already people are identifying a conflict of interest in football and academics on campus. The jokes that fuel me that, uh, that populate that movie are in many ways fueled by uh, by uh, observing this kind of inherent conflict that you're bringing one thing into another, uh, and, and so I think that that's a movie that I would definitely recommend you watch. It's hilarious and and fun and lighthearted, but surprisingly deep uh, in, in its own way too. So, uh, do you guys have anything to uh, to recommend? Oh, to recommend? No, but your movie your movie discussion gets me thinking. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, just another—it's another uh, another thing to, to, to harp on a little bit. You know, I think about football movies. Mm. Uh, you know, and of course, the Kendrick brothers put out this facing the Giants right long ago. That was their, you know, big, 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 big thing. I mean, there, there they are tapping into this to, you know, to do what they've done with every film of theirs, which. You know, I've got issues with. I don't. I don't particularly like any of their films. I'd rather watch The Longest Yard by a long shot than <laughs> even um, the Adam Sandler one, probably. <laughs> I'm talking to. Them. <laughs> but uh, you know, and I think Christian. Actually, I think maybe taking up the Kendrick Brothers is one of these things that you're planning on doing. <laughs> I was just going to say, show. that's actually a wonderful uh, segue into the next subject we'll talk well, about. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. <laughs> let's, let's, uh, let, let's do that sometime. I, I have one more thing to add. Yeah, yeah go, go ahead. ahead. Um, I have been looking, and I cannot find what it's called, um, but a friend a year or two ago had, had uh, posted a documentary about um, the exploitation of professional cheerleaders. And, mm. sorry, I can't find the details on it, but just Google cheerleader exploitation, and it's really <laughs> don't do that at uh, work. Yeah, though. Yeah, um. not, not at work. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so don't Google that. Uh, <laughs> <it's> <laughs> but it, this is another aspect of, I mean, several problematic areas, um, which they'd be interesting for the Christian feminist podcast to tackle uh, cheerleading actually as a a cultural phenomenon because I just find so many problems with it. But um, it's just like horrifically 
abusive and underpaid and mm-hmm. uh, very symptomatic of a lot of the problems with, with pro football. And in the South, as far as the gender identity, I know from experience, those sort of dance schools, cheerleading schools, are kind of the the companion to the football culture that young boys are put into. And, and, and uh, yeah, all the boys want to play for the Bulldogs, all the girls want to be a Georgette. And, and so this is a... Uh, um, yeah, those two things are not unrelated. I'll I'll try and look into that, and if I can find it, I'll post a link to it on uh, on the Facebook page. Um, well, as Todd has uh, uh, given me the opportunity to allude to, uh, uh, the next podcast I'd like to talk about uh, I is uh, these sort of cr- the Christian movie phenomenon. I've tentatively titled "Against Praise Movies," and uh, we want to sort of talk about Christian art uh, and perhaps the aesthetics of that and, and we'll uh, be looking into the sort of Kirk Cameron version of Christian art versus um, maybe the seventh seal as you guys talked about on the Christian uh, humanist podcast once and so uh, which is really better for us as Christians and so um, I had a really wonderful conversation this is a lot of fun you guys and I feel like I've gotten a lot off my chest I feel uh, mentally healthier than I than I, I was when I started this and so that's a good thing um, thank you so much both of you for um, uh, for participating drew you hear uh, regularly on this show um, hopefully I haven't scared him off yet he'll be back and and Todd you can listen to the book of nature podcast Todd do you want to tell us a little bit about that well, so we're sort of in a winter break, um, but uh, but we have just recorded uh, a, a first episode of the of, of the semester um, on the question. Well, the, the the title of the episode is is why science needs metaphysics. Uh, so we're talking about the uh, underlying assumptions the scientists make and 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 the importance thereof and and what happens when you deny that. Um, and so, yeah, you can look for that. Uh, it should be dropping at about the same time this one drops, I guess. Uh, we're at, at, set, set for Wednesday. This will probably drop on Thursday, so it should be up there. Um, yeah. Todd yeah, Pedler all over your iPad. That's awesome. Um, <laughs> Uh, and, and on that subject, uh, just a, a quick note, uh, Drew had mentioned Terry Eagleton's book, uh, Why Marx Was Right. He also has another uh, book that sounds kind of uh, almost a similar uh, approach. It's called um, Reason, Faith, and Revolution. And it's basically defending Christianity, uh, a certain his version of Christianity, against the new atheism. And, and it sort of, uh, in many ways, uh, speaks to, I think, the metaphysical claims of science. And I think that that's... Uh, uh, something I'll have in mind as I listen to that. Um, well, guys, I really do appreciate it, both uh, uh, both of you being here. It was wonderful. You were both excellent. Uh, and uh, keep us in mind again. Uh, we'll uh, keep turning these things out as uh, long as I'm able to and, uh, and hopefully keep having this much fun. Thanks a lot and bye. Drop kick me Jesus through the goalposts of life. End over end, neither left nor to right Straight through the heart of them righteous uprights Drop kick me Jesus through the goalposts of life Thanks for listening to Sectarian Review. Download us again next month for another hour of criticism, reviews, and opinion. In the meantime, check out our Facebook page and send us an email at sectarianreview at gmail.com. Sectarian Review is a part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Eternal thanks to Kristen Philippic, the trepid press liaison. Until next time, remember the words of Kafka, don't despair, not even over the fact that you don't despair. Bye. <laughs>